You're listening to Philippians, a Sunday school series taught by Andrew McComb at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Philippians chapter 3 this morning. You'll understand in a moment why, we're, why we are reviewing, but we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 17 through 4.3. And just as way of reminder this morning, um, this is a church, this letter is to a church that Paul loves. We said last week this is his favorite church. This is a church that he was connected with. They did ministry together. And there's no question that Paul loves them. In, in fir- the first chapter, number eight, God is my witness. Right? So, so he, he's invoking God for them to know, I'm not exaggerating, this is not hyperbole, God is my witness how I yearn for you all. I think he was Southern. I yearn for you all, right? With the affection of Jesus Christ. That Paul could think of these people and say, I love you like Christ is an amazing thing. And we talked last week about chapter 4, verse number 1, where Paul again reiterates his love for this church. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, dearly beloved and longed for, my crown and joy, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. And again, he is expressing his, his utter love for these people. And in light of that love and what is said now, Paul is going to make a statement. And just as a way of reminder, you and I know this. People can say things to us, but if we don't believe that those people love us, it's hard to accept what it's saying. But when we have relationships with people that we know, they yearn for us, they think of us as brothers or sisters, they long for us, they love us, then what they say is easy and and actually welcomed as they give us instruction. And so in light of what Paul has just said in chapters 1 through 3, And in fact, that he loves these people, he says, I want you to stand fast or to stand firm in the Lord. We talked extensively about this last week, that the idea here is a military term. It's a metaphor. It does not mean that I have to go out and conquer and to try to to establish some type of victory. What Paul is saying is the victory has been won through Jesus Christ and what I am longing for you as I love you and care for you, as I want what's best for you, I want you to stand fast. I want you to stand firm. I want you to hold your ground. Don't quit. Don't go backwards. Don't slack off. Hold your ground. Occupy until he comes. And so we talked about that last week. We finished the message. Actually, we finished the second message. And after the message, I was approached with a question about that text and what was just said. And it was a great question. It's the kind of questions you want to hear after any message. Not good message, great message, terrible message. The question was this. In light of what Paul is asking believers to do, and in light of what you just said about standing fast and standing firm, When the rubber meets the road, how do I stand firm? ...on my door. When I have tunnel vision and I see what I want to do, knowing that this direction will not lead to life but death, when I've blown it again and again and this week is full of failures, when I lost it on the kids or my spouse or that other believer... 
My anger boiled over again. How is it then that I am to stand in the Lord and stand firm? And that's a great question. And it's a question worth at least mentioning this morning and trying to give some clarity to that. When we hear a message, we should all long to put flesh on that and say, okay, so now that I've heard this, so what? Not so what, who cares? But so what does this mean for me? And how do I take this truth and live this out this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow morning? And so by God's grace this morning, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about what it means to stand fast and how we do that in the midst of, like the Philippians, a culture that is against the believer, that that we are constantly bombarded by ideas and ideologies and philosophies and things that are contrary to what we believe and what we hold dear. How is it then that the believer stands firm? Well, to put meat on this, I think we go back to the text and he says to stand fast or stand firm in the Lord. That phrase is really important as we begin. Because in the Lord is the character of every true believer. Paul said that I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness of God, which comes through Jesus Christ. And Paul realized, like we all had to realize, that in ourselves there is no righteousness. I cannot atone for my past sin, my present sin, or my future sin. A matter of fact, as I try to merit God's favor, God says that those righteousnesses, plural, are like filthy bags. Right? No merit of my own, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. And for the believer this morning, to be in the Lord means that I have repented, I have believed, I am trusting in him. And now when God looks at me, he does not see the disobedience, the sin, the, dis- the, the, the unbelief of Rick Dressler. What he sees is the perfect obedience and righteousness of the Son, Jesus Christ. We are in him. And we need to pause this morning and try to grasp what that looks like for us as we live this life. It means that if I'm in the Lord, I have a new allegiance. Jesus Christ is not your homeboy or the guy we go to for help. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is sovereign king. And the believer must understand, as I am called to stand fast in this victory, I am to serve my king, to be loyal, to have an allegiance to him above all others. And so when these temptations come, when culture tries to sweep us away, we must understand that we are already in the Lord. We have an allegiance to our king. But not only that, it's not only allegiance, But in the Lord also carries that idea that we are to abide in him. We are in the Lord, but we are to abide in him. This is John 15. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, abiding in me, depending on me, leaning in me, living in me, you can do nothing. We fail over and over again in our stand because we try to do it in our own flesh. And that is failure every time. Every time. In this flesh, there is no confidence. The pollution runs deep in our nature. And if you're a believer this morning, you understand that there is constantly conflict between the spirit and the flesh. This is, this is what Paul was talking about in Galatians chapter 5. That the spirit lusts 
or desires against the flesh, and the flesh, the spirit, they are contrary one to another. And we feel that, do we not? We have a heart that longs to love him and know him. And if you know Christ, you do have a desire to stand firm. You might not be there. You might slip. You might fall. But deep within, the Spirit says, yes, this is true. This is right. This is life. You know the conflict. There is no confidence in the flesh. The confidence comes in Christ. We are in him. It is Christ living through me. I think oftentimes we as believers forget that Christ not only died to take care of the penalty of our sin, that you and I as believers will never come into account for our sins. It was finished on Calvary. He paid for my past, present, and future sin. And not only that, someday Jesus Christ will literally deliver us from the very presence of sin. He talked about that in chapter 3 at the end, delivering this vile body, that there is coming a day when sin will not be a problem for me. I will see him as he is, and I will be like him. But what we fail to remember is that because of Christ's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again, he has broken the power of sin in our lives. Whether we feel it or not, this is the truth of the matter. I no longer have to be slave to those impulses and those temptations. I can be changed, but it comes through Christ. I told the folks this morning, if there's one verse that you need to memorize in your Christian walk, it's Galatians 2.20. And Paul just lays this out for us. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Paul is speaking. We know he didn't mean literally being crucified. He's talking about that old man, the old nature. When Christ died, that nature died with him. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm alive. I'm here today. I am battling against culture and sin and the flesh and Satan, all of those things. I'm alive. So I'm crucified with Christ. Uh, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. See, remember this, because when you're preaching it, you will forget it. I did the same thing this morning. It's like, um, I'm crucified with Christ. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What must happen for us is, as these things come and we're tempted not to stand, we say no to the flesh, we mortify the flesh, we kill the flesh with its desires and say, Jesus Christ, you must live through me. Now listen to me. For some of you folks, you're discouraged by that because you think, oh my goodness, I know my struggles, I know my battles. And they go year after year after year after year. You do not need victory for this year or this month or this week or this day. You need to allow Christ to live through you in this moment. In this moment it is a pause of now to say, as I don't want to stand, as I'm drawn away, as sin is knocking on my door, as I see this one thing I want, Jesus Christ, I need your power, your strength, your obedience. Help me to put this flesh to death now and allow you and your righteousness and your response and your love and your grace and your power to respond instead. That's what Paul is speaking about here. We must allow Christ to live through us if we're going to stand fast. But that's not all. Paul then motivates us by two things. He motivates us by the coming of Christ. He says, we await a Savior. 
And, and I think so many times in this battle that, that we are called to stand, and this is the battle we're engaged in, we forget that Christ is coming again. And we wait for him, and that waiting is not inactive. That waiting is active. It is longing. It is looking. It is occupying till he comes. And Paul says, it is in light of this second coming that gives me the strength and the grace to stand. Why? Because, Paul, because John says that those who have this hope of him splitting the eastern sky purify himself even as he is pure. The idea of the second coming of Christ is not to set dates, but to help us to be pure, waiting and longing for Christ, looking for him and wanting him to find us serving him. And I think we don't understand this. When I was a kid, this is how immature my thinking was about the second coming of Christ. And back in the 80s, which I told the folks this morning, back in the 80s is 40 years ago now. I remember that clearly, all right? The 80s, 40 years ago. There was a lot of preaching on the second coming, almost every week. Reagan was in office in the States. Gorbachev was in power. He had some big birthmark on his head, which was certainly the mark of the beast. And there were 88 reasons why Christ was coming, why he was coming in September of 1988. And I remember distinctively thinking, Lord, I do love you, but I want to go to Cedar Point this year. <laughs> this, was, this was the depth of my spirituality, that I wanted to go to Cedar Point, that I wanted to come back, but come back after Kim Manning, come back after I have kids. And what I failed to understand is the power and the beauty of the Savior who we wait for, that he is coming again. And when he comes, we will see him face to face, and I will be like him, for I shall see him. And in this body, I will hold him and love him and experience him. God will be with his people, and we will be with him. And this is what we look for. And in that truth, there is strength to say, in this moment, I am looking and longing for his coming. There's also another motivation there. And again, it's in the text. It is a church. It is a church. We have helped to stand in the Lord by the examples in our church. Paul says, follow me, follow us, mark those in the church who are following Christ. Imitation, we said last week, is powerful. You know this, I know this. You watch your kids. And every kid has said this. There are things that happen in our childhood and we say, I will never do what my dad did. I will never say what my mom said until... We have children. Exactly what we said we weren't going to do. Why? Because imitation is powerful. And in the church of Jesus Christ, it's the same thing. Much of our Christian growth comes through the imitation of other believers. How do you learn how to pray? You listen to other believers. How do you learn how to read the word? You listen to the preaching of the word. How do you learn how to respond in your home or to conflict or to trouble? You watch the life of seasoned believers. Those examples are powerful. And I don't know that we understand the privilege that we have not only to follow examples, but to be an example. This quote says, talking about the privilege of, of helping others love God. And by the way, if we love people, the greatest thing we can do for them is direct them to love their creator. Because it is in being reconciled to him that life finally makes sense, that we see our purpose, that he loves and cares for us. But the quote goes like this, to help another human being to love God is to love another person. So as church family, 
When I help another human being and I point them to love God, I am literally loving them. And to be helped by another human being, um, to love God is to be loved. And that's the glory of the examples we have. Listen, if you're going to stand firm, if you're going to stand fast, it must be in the Lord. It must be in his power. But he motivates us through the coming of Christ. He motivates us in the examples of the church. Listen to me. It is in the confines of the body of Christ that we even understand we're drifting. Do you know drifting is very subtle? If you're out in the lake or the ocean and there's a current and you're on a raft just cruising around, you close your eyes and before you know it, you've drifted further than you could ever imagine. And what the body of Christ says is, brother, sister, we're doing life together and it seems like you're drifting, we're calling you back. You don't even understand your own spiritual growth outside the church. You can think this morning, hey, I am loving, I am kind, I am patient. Patient. And that's fine until you're in a body of people that are nothing like you and they push back on that. Do you know the reason I'm here? To test your patience. To test your love. Because you have to love someone who's unlovely. And that's the church of Jesus Christ. We have these examples. The early church understood this. And we need to as well. If you're going to stand fast in a culture that is sweeping us away, you must understand the importance of the church. And let me just say this. I, I thank God for the technology that we have. I thank God that it working today. Just joking. <laughs> just want to keep you on your toes. And it is working today. But can I tell you something? I know there are dear folks who can't be here for our assembly. And we understand, and you shouldn't be. The folks who are cautious and careful, and they are at risk. Risk. But let me say that church service is sitting in your living room for the rest of your life, watching the service online, that is not Christ. It's not. It's to assemble. We must do life with one another. It's, it's seeing real. There, have, there has to be living examples. We have to see flesh and blood. That's the problem with, you know, some people, well, I'm, on, I'm, I'm going to church online. Well, that pastor doesn't know you. Those elders don't know you. Those deacons don't know you. Those members don't be as sweet as pie to them. We must bless the other. So, the examples and the exhortation of the church. In our family, with our boys growing up, there wasn't a month that went by that either two or three times around our table, we had what we called tweaking sessions. And we would sit after dinner and say, okay, where are you? What's going on in your spiritual life? Or I would apologize for blowing it and saying something I shouldn't have said or apologizing to my wife in front of them or, hey, boys, how I handled that was wrong. And the idea was that we were coming together to exhort and to encourage and to tweak our lives to get back on path. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ is. We come together to be exhorted, to be encouraged, to be convicted, to be challenged, to be confronted, to be rebuked. We do that together. And so I, I hope this morning... That's this idea of standing, standing fast and standing firm. I hope we've been able to put a little flesh on this so that you know that the only way this is possible, that you know Christ first and foremost, and that you lean on the Lord, you allow him to live through you in that moment. That moment. There is always a window of escape. We close the window. But Christ says, if you allow me to live through you, in that moment, you can have obedience. And then we look after one another.
And so I, I hope that helps. And again, if there are more questions, I'd, I'd love to field those questions. But I hope you see the beauty and the importance of both the coming of Christ and this church. Chapter 4, verse 1. Here again we find that bridge between doctrinal truth that we've seen through all of Philippians to this point and the extremely practical. And so just by way of remembering now, or remembrance, or reminder, I guess is the word, uh, by way of reminder, let me walk you through all the doctrine, the rich, deep theology of the book of Philippians 1 through 3. And now think about this. In three short, short chapters, here's what we learn. That what Christ has begun in our lives, he will finish. We have learned that. We have learned that there is love and consolation in knowing Christ. We have learned that the Spirit of God participates in our lives. We have learned of the deity of Jesus Christ, that, that, that he was God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God. We have learned of his humility, his obedience, his self-sacrifice, his sacrificial death and atonement for the believer. We have learned of his resurrection, his exaltation, his power, his glory, his second coming. The idea that he will change these bodies by the power, his own innate power, that he'll give us resurrected bodies. We have learned the surpassing worth of knowing him all in three short chapters. And this is how Paul, Paul writes and this is how God operates. He first tells us all that he is and all that he's done, God. And then he tells us what to do in light of that. And so, with all of this rich theology, can you imagine, Paul is going to give us now the most exciting thing that he can think of to help us put the rubber to the road now. This is what this looks like after all of this wonderful, deep, profound theology. Here's what he says in verse number 2. I beseech Euodius and I beseech Stephen, they be of the same mind. Those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my labors, whose names are in the book of life. So, Paul says, in light of everything I've just told you, the glory and the richness of your doctrine and theology, here's what I want you to do first, out of all things. Hey, tell Euodius and tell Syntyche, get along. Get along. The first thing Paul chooses to tell the church after all of this rich theology is this. Hey, tell those two sisters who are fussing to get along. Now, I don't know about you, but that was so anticlimactic for me. I, I was telling the folks this morning, um, there's, a, there's a line in Princess Bride. It's, a, it's an old movie from 87, again, 40-something years ago. Um, but there's, there's the grandfather, Peter Falk, is reading to his grandson. Um, Fred Savage, and he's reading about this story. And in the story, they come to a part where Prince Humperdinck is supposed to be, he's going to get what he deserves, and it doesn't happen. And the grandson is so upset, he says, wait a minute, Grandpa, you've read that wrong. That can't be right. It doesn't finish like that. That doesn't make no sense. It can't be right. And I feel after reading this, that I say to Paul, wait a minute, Paul, in light of everything you said, are you kidding me? That your advice now for this church that you love is this. Hey, tell those two ladies to get along. Now, before we delve into this and see why this is so important, I, I want you to understand something about these women. Um, they are not the typical church ladies. Oh, that's a church lady, and you know she's always complaining. Or yeah, those are those two Muppet guys, right? Always grumbling and heckling. That's not the case. Listen to these two women. They were in the book of life. They were saved. 
They were actively involved in ministry at the Church of Philippi. They worked with others for gospel work. And they were companions and laborers with the Apostle Paul. Um, this is not a bad resume. These aren't just bad women in the church, but Paul can give practical advice for who get off track. So why, after all this doctrine, is this such a big deal for Paul to say, hey, ladies, get along? I have two things for you today. That's it. Just two points. Number one, why is this a big deal? Number one, we are called to be different. Talking to believers now. After all of this doctrine, Paul says, hey, by the way, ladies, get along. And church, help those ladies get along. Why? We're called to be different. Believer, may I remind you that those who know Christ have been called out of darkness. Darkness. Darkness is a terrible thing, right? You can't see in darkness. You grope in darkness. There is no light in darkness. And Paul says, we have been called out of darkness into his glorious light. Therefore, walk, live like children of light. Listen to what Paul says in Titus, uh, verses 1 through 8. And this is lengthy, but I, I think it's worth hearing. He says in Titus 3.1, Put them in mind, talking to the church, to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, right? Obey your authorities, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawler or quarreler, to be gentle, showing all meekness or courtesy unto to men. Now listen to this. For we ourselves also were. Okay, pay attention. Paul is saying, here's what I want you to do. But we also were, which is past tense. Paul says, I want to tell you how we used to be. He is anticipating change. He is presupposing change for God's people. He says, we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving different lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Is I could have looked at the news this week and found all of this there. This is our world. This is our culture. And Paul is assuming for the believer that that's how we used to be. Hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared unto all men, and he saved us. He saved us. And so we are called to be different. To be different. I've been reading a book called Provocations by Kierkegaard. It's been a, it's been a fascinating read for me. And, and, and I have a lot of quotes from him because of that. That's where I'm at right now. But for him, he was fighting against a, a Lutheran dead church where there was this outward piety but there was no joy, love, patience, kindness. It was, it, was, it was bad. And what he said was, I think we need to introduce Christianity, true Christianity, to Christendom. Because what had happened was, the church became just cultural. Cultural. Listen to what he says. Christianity has been made so completely devoid of character. No difference. That there is really nothing to persecute. 
The chief trouble with Christians, therefore, is that no one wants to kill them anymore. I'm not looking for people to kill Christians, but what he's saying is this. The church today is devoid of real character. That we're different from the cultural Christianity around us. And it's not just our neighbors to the south. We have this idea as believers today that we go to church on Sunday, we do a little smile, we act all happy, we leave then and live what we want to do on Monday through Saturday. We're to be different. We're to be different because we we are to have regenerated hearts that hate darkness and love light. And so we're called to be different. But number two... We're called to be undivided. This idea of getting along in church, and it's not just the two sisters, it's all believers. This idea is a gospel issue. Why, you might ask? Because we read a Bible. That's why. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is describing Gentiles before they came to Christ. And he says that we were without hope, we were lost without God in this world. But what happened was Jesus Christ came and he broke down the middle wall of partition, that which divided Jew and Gentile, which was crazy. It was more divisive than anything we can think of today, even the black-white issue right now. They despised one another. And yet Paul said Christ came and he broke that middle wall down, creating not this different... But one body, one family, a new living organism called the church. And there is no division. A matter of fact, he says in chapter 3 that God's wisdom will be shown to angelic hosts by what he's done in the church. By taking this man and this woman who have nothing in common at all, should not even be sitting next to each other, now singing praises to the King of Kings. We are called to be undivided whether you're a teen or 20 or 92 years old or 95, like, like Anna here this morning, we are called to display unity. Unity. Especially in the world we live in today. Is there anyone who's been living under a rock lately that doesn't know that there is so much division politically, socially, and racially? And just to let you know, there is not a government or a party who can fix it at all. I grew up again in the 80s, 40 years ago, and I grew up in a divided city in Cleveland. So bad that they decided to to practice desegregation, which meant kids from the west side would be bused to the east, kids from the east side would be bused to the west side. Can I tell you something? It was a colossal failure. Because government can't fix Hearts, they can't change hearts. They, that is only the work of Jesus Christ. And if the church cannot be unified together, there is no hope for the world. None. And as the world looks in, brothers and sisters in Christ, who no matter where they're from and what they've done or the color of their skin, they are united because they're different in Christ, new natures, and they're undivided under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that people don't fuss and fight in church? No, people do fuss and fight in church. Um, We have disagreements. We have hurts. We have struggles. 
And we all do. The difference is, oh, by the way, um, there's nobody here, I, I think, who's not been hurt in church. Okay, let's be honest right this morning. If you're here this morning and someone ever hurt you in church, said something, did something, was unkind to you, can I see your hand this morning? I'm raising mine. Okay, let me just look around. All right? Okay, if you did not raise your hand, it's coming. It's just a matter of time. It, it's going to happen. I'm not saying that there, there aren't disagreements. Because we are sinners saved by grace. We are Christians who still sin. It is unconfessed and unaddressed sin that damages the church. We are called to be united. United. You say, well, pastor, you don't know what Synthache said to me. You don't know what Euodius posted about me. You don't know how they ignored me in church, or they didn't say hi to me, and so I'm just done. I can't live like that. These people, they're unbearable. I can't go to church anymore. I will not go to church. I love Jesus. I'll do my own thing. Or if I go, I'll sit here, and I'll hate them over there. We should never cross paths. Now listen to me. That is an attitude in many churches. But this morning, if you're here and you say, hey, listen, I want you to know I love Jesus, but him or her, that brother or sister, eh, I can't stand them. Okay, Now listen, don't raise your hands right now if that's you, because there's bad news coming. If you're saying that this morning and you think that that's okay and that's acceptable, that I love Jesus, and I, I've been hurt, I'm not forgiven, I'm getting away from this, I'm, I'm separating, I'm out of here, but I love Jesus, there are three options for you this morning. Number one, if you say that, and you will not forgive, you will not reconcile, you will not make things right, and as lovingly, as kind as I can say this, you're a liar. You are a liar. And you say, Pastor Rick, that's really harsh. I know. I would never say that on my own. I don't like to say harsh things. People of love said that. Listen to the words of John in 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. This is the ground of all of this. We love him not because we were lovely. He loved us first. If a man or woman says, I love God and hate brother or sister, he is a liar. A liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. So, if you're sitting here, and you want to stay with this line that I love Jesus, but I can't stand that brother or sister, and you're going to stay with the divide there and not be reconciled, I would just say to you, you ought to listen to John, the disciple of love. He says, you're a liar. Number two option. Maybe you're not a liar. Maybe you're lost. And I'm serious. I've been at this long enough to know that there are people in churches who are lost without Christ. They are religious. They do their deal but they're lost. And, and again, you, you might say, Rick, that sounds really harsh. I mean, you're, you're batting a thousand, right? Harshness. You mean I'm a liar or I could be lost? Yes. You ought to read Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, 
Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And Peter thinks he nails it by saying, hey, listen, in our culture, three times, that's enough. But, but should we forgive seven times? And Jesus says, no, Peter. Try seven times 70. And, and Jesus knows what that means for them because he launches right into a parable about a guy, you remember, who owed billions and billions of dollars to the king. And he begs for mercy. And he says, please, just give me some mercy. I will repay you. And the king just dissolves all of the debt. Like that, it's gone. Can you imagine the grace of that king? And that same servant who owed the king billions of dollars goes out and finds a guy who owed him a couple hundred bucks. And he grabs him by the neck and says, you're going to pay me all of it or I'm going to throw you into prison. And the guy pleads for mercy just like he did. And the guy then throws him into prison. And when the king finds out about this, he's not happy. Not at all. And he says to this ungodly servant, because of the fact that you did not forgive, I will not forgive you your debt. Christian, do you understand something? Your forgiveness is forgiveness. The way that you forgive people is the way that God forgives you. And if you're sitting saying, there's no way I can forgive him or her, then God is in essence saying, how am I supposed to forgive you then? It's a funny thing. We all think we're Raymond from Everyone Loves Raymond. We do. And so someone sins against us, and we're all bent out of shape about it, and we go to God and say, God, can you believe that that guy or that woman said that and did this and how wicked their heart is? But God is funny, though, is he not? There's an illustration about the fellow who calls the cops because... Someone stole his drugs, right? Stole his marijuana. Well, marijuana is not no longer, well, I guess marijuana is legal. So congratulations to drugs who wore, they won the war on drugs. So, so, but the guy calls the cops because he has illegal contraband. He's got drugs. And so the cops come. When they come, the problem is you're calling us because someone sold your drugs. What are you doing with drugs? And we go before God and say, hey, this man or this woman said that and said this. I think God just steps back and says, okay, now what about you? What about what you said and what you've done? And so Jesus says, hey, if you will not forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. I don't ever, I don't think we even understand what Jesus just said there. Saved people, forgiven people, forgive. They have to. You have to forgive. So you are either a liar, you're lost, or the very best case scenario this morning is your religion is lame. It is lame. I've already acknowledged people get hurt in church. I get it. We've all been there. And if you think, oh, you're the pastor. No one hurts you. You have no idea then how this works. 19 years in the same place, you get hurt. People say and do things that are unkind and uncharitable. And it, I get it. I do understand. But I think sometimes we need to step back and realize that whatever the sin was, that was done against us, We have sinned against God more than anyone will ever sin against us, ever. And and we we do these comparison things so many times, it's just not good. The other day, I was was actually staining our deck, and so I had a a second gallon of stain, and I went, and don't ever do this, I went to shake the can, and they're supposed to put the lid on the can real tight, stain, one shake, boom, lid goes up, down, bucket drops, 
concrete, stain. My deck, instead of doing it an hour and a half, I was, I was cleaning up cement for an hour and a half. And I was really feeling terrible about myself. It was terrible. So the very next, no, that evening, Kim and I were driving out toward Walmart, and there was a guy pulled over the side of the road, and he had this van, and you could tell that he lost, you know the five-gallon things of paint? He lost three of them. And then as we lost three more before that. And so I just thought to myself, um, Rick, shut up. It's a gallon of paint. What does it matter? And sometimes when we get hurt, we never see the big picture of that. The next time you feel like you can't forgive forgiveness, let me just give you a name to think about. How about Louis Zamperini? I have no idea who that is. Well, if you saw the story Unbroken, you might know who that is. He was an Olympic athlete, fighter pilot in World War II. Plane went down on a, on a search and rescue mission was captured by the Japanese, and in a Japanese concentration camp, was tortured. And the man who was in charge was known as a bird. He was vicious and violent and wicked. He tortured him and tried to break his spirit. What that, that movie is that afterwards he went home, his wife was a believer in Christ, crusade, trusted Christ as Savior, he was battling with alcoholism, got saved, went back to Japan. To find the bird, the man who tortured him, not meet with him, he wrote a letter and forgave him. So, can you tell me once again why it is you can't forgive that brother or sister who sit next to you today, or that parent, or that husband, or that child? Ever hear of Corey Tenboom? Taken hiding. Jews from the Nazis. You know what happened? The neighbors called. I always thought, how in the world that could happen? But I guess they must have had COVID-19 as well. <laughs> Calling on your neighbors. We're afraid of everything. Let's call our, on our neighbors. And they did. She lost her sister and suffered unbelievable indignity in Ravensbrück. And when she survived, she went back to Germany and found the guards who abused her and forgave. And so, brother or sister this morning, I don't know what we're saying, but if you're sitting in a congregation of people that you can't stand, you are either a liar, lost, or your faith is so lame that you have forgotten the grace of Jesus Christ that saved you. That saved you. We are called to be different. We are called to be undivided. And so this morning, I invite you, if, if, if this is an issue, if a name has come to your head, if there's an issue with a believer here, or, or for any person, the truth is, God's people, above all people, that, that, that Japanese soldier and that German guard were not born again. Those people forgave to, to be, find release and to forgive like they were called to forgive. If you have a conflict in your home or with a family member or a neighbor, the believer should be the one who goes to the foot of Calvary. And at Calvary's hill, you see Jesus dying for our sin, our lust, our greed, our gossip, our self-righteousness, our pride, our anger, our unkind words or unkind posts. He died for that. And yet we find forgiveness and we find grace. And reconciliation. 
And so, when Paul says, hey, tell those two sisters to get along, this is a big deal. This is a gospel issue. Because God's people are to be different than this world and undivided in our assembly. And so today, if you've got a name, if you have a person, you want to help put flesh on this one? Go see them. Go repent. Go ask for forgiveness. Grant forgiveness. Be reconciled. This is what Paul is talking about. And this is a gospel issue. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that your truth would sink deep into our hearts, that we would know and understand what it means to be different in this world and to be undivided in our body. Lord, the head is Christ. The body is one. And to love Jesus is to love his people. Help us to do that. This morning, I pray that you would speak to hearts. You would prepare their lives to do whatever the next step is, to be obedient to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.